0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of season two of CKX Questions. My name is Alexander Dirksen and I'm the Director of Programs and Community Accountability at CKX. In this episode, I'm excited to share with you a conversation with Michelle kumi Bear that took place earlier this year. The topics we discussed and the work to be done around and within them have only taken on new urgency and significance since we recorded this episode. A social justice practitioner, Michelle currently serves as Philanthropy Project Director at Race Forward, an organization that catalyzes movement building for racial justice. In our wide-ranging conversation, we explored the roots of philanthropy and the nonprofit industrial complex, just transitions and transformations, and the importance of accountability in social change work. Let's maybe just start with how would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? And what are your pronouns
1: as well? Um, There's a lot of things I could share in order for people to know more about me. I can start with my name. My name is Michelle Kumi-Bear. That is my first, middle, and last. I actually just recently re-met the Michelle I was named after. She's a friend of my mother's. And um, it was just heartwarming to know that my parents had a friend that was dear to them, and they thought to give her name to me. Um, So that's where my Michelle comes from. Kumi is my Japanese name. My grandfather, uh, Rokuo Mizokami, gave me that name. And it loosely means long lasting beauty in Japanese. Mm. And I um, was <laughs> like, thank you, Grandpa. Everlasting beauty, long lasting beauty. It's quite, it's quite an inheritance there. And then my last name there is German. It comes from my European ancestors. So I have Japanese ancestor on my mom's side, European on my dad's. And um, so there's two ways I've heard about this this family name. One, one explanation is that our ancestors kind of looked like bears. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I can say, the this is this hairier variance on that side of the family, uh, for sure. So that makes sense to you. And the other explanation is that we hunted bears at some point in time. So I'm still trying to get my history right with that. Um, but that's my full name um, and a bit about me and my family and where I, where I come from. And my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And um, other things to know about me. So I grew up on Ohlone land, the ancestral and unceded lands of the Ohlone peoples here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I would say being here, um, growing up here in the late eighties and um, early to mid and late nineties, there is definitely this overall story about the Bay Area as a tolerant and welcoming place where a lot of people can belong and you might be catching some of the sarcasm in my voice. And clearly that was not the case. Um, and that was a time of great inequity, widening in inequity. And so um, getting to have the opportunity to travel around the Bay area to notice when I'd visit my grandparents, for example, in Berkeley, California, um, homelessness class, segregation, racial segregation, even in even in cities at the time where we prided ourselves on being a multiracial community in the Bay Area. There was still a lot of segregation. Noticing those things as a child made me really uh, start to ask a lot of critical questions. Um, And then I became more aware of other inheritances that I have. And one of those is the fact that uh, my grandparents and their families were forcibly incarcerated during uh, World War II during um. A period folks refer to as the Japanese internment, but I think it's a lot more accurate to say that people were incarcerated. So I was a young kid looking through my grandmother's paraphernalia from her time when she was young, and realized that odd things appeared in these yearbooks that I hadn't heard about before. There was a desert landscape and barbed wire, and only Japanese faces in the students uh, among the students. And uh, it got me to ask critical questions at a young age and that's sort of that critical inquiry is a spirit that I've taken on um, you know ever since it's funny I'm at my um, speaking with you as I'm at my my father's home in the Bay Area right now I just dug up my old uh, thesis from undergrad I went to Brown University and that's where I really I think blossomed intellectually and got really engaged we had a students of color organizing center we had a lot of majors that were born out of critical inquiry that folks have been bringing to the university you know for several decades and I'm looking at this thesis that I wrote and it was like third world feminist critical discourse analysis and I just it's just just so heartwarming to look back at that Michelle and see you know that was a time where I was really inspired by Chandra Mohanty and a few of my um, my critical feminist like professors who were at Brown, you know, uh, several of whom who you know I still follow to this day. And I'm just really thankful for, for all those different inheritances I've got, whether it's um, directly through my, my direct relations with my family or through the people who've been teachers and mentors to me over time. So that, that feels like a good introduction for now. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing more as we talk.
0: That's yeah. beautiful. Thanks for sharing. So maybe we can start with this season's big question the question for this season is how do we mobilize to realize just futures for you and your work across all the various things that you do what is your vision for just futures
1: yeah just futures and it's it's so much a reference to what our past and our present is and have been right to say if we're going to have justice in the future it means that the forces of oppression that have shaped how our society is organized around the ways in which we've been racialized, gendered, the ways in which our bodies have been organized into quote-unquote ability and quote-unquote disability, that those of us and our communities that have been marginalized by those forces of oppression get to self-determine our futures, right? That we actually get to exist in the future in a way where we can more fully express our, our full humanity and Tell the tale of what that oppression has meant for us in our community. So um, that we have a future and that we can self-determine that future is is a part of that vision. And it's necessarily something that I see, and this might get to that mobilization piece that you just lifted up, Alexander, is that it's not just us talking about it from a framework of racial justice, but we're thinking simultaneously about gender justice, disability justice, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. We're dismantling homophobia and transphobia. It's a both and. Yeah. And and that solidarity, that mobilization across movements for social justice is something that I I feel really privileged to get to lean into more and more as I do my work.
0: Hmm. The solidarity piece, it, it reminds me one of the actually the first episode of CKX Questions in season one, we had Asan Bupuya mm-hmm. on for a conversation about decolonial solidarity.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: we just love to hear a little bit more about what does that look like for you? What are you starting to see in, t- in terms of some of that work, in terms of some of those connections that are emerging in community?
1: So I work right now at Race Forward, which is a racial justice organization. And when we're in training rooms, we talk about this intersectional framework that we bring to the work. And it's not unlike frameworks that have ex- ex- existed in other spaces, one. And two, it's not a new framework communities of color and black black women in particular have been leaders on intersectional work for some time, even before Dr. Crenshaw uh, coined the term intersectionality. It's been a facet of the work, the thinking and the work behind a lot of movements for, for social justice for some time. The way that we articulate it in our trainings is it's a race and frame, so talking about race in relationship to other aspects of our identities at all times, that race does not exist separate from and exclusive from other aspects of identity. So you can have a race and gender frame, a race and uh, disability frame, a race and immigration uh, frame. And then, you know, as I've learned more deeply and lead more deeply into my own practice as a facilitator and as an educator interested in questions of justice, you know, the clearer it is to me that racism need, needed ableism, you know, ra- racism needed xenophobia, you know, all these systems of oppression. It's not just that I don't have a one track identity. I'm not just an Asian woman at all time or Asian person at all time. Rather, I am Asian. I'm a cis woman. Um, I'm straight. That's been my experience of my sexuality thus far in my life. It's not that we exist, right? as only one issue or one identity. It's also that the systems of oppression that exists in society also existed together, right? There's not just one system of oppression. And as colonial powers exerted their view of what the world was supposed to be, they were leaning on ideas of white supremacy that needed an ableist frame to craft what is their ideal Aryan, you know, male, quote unquote, archetype. And um, so I think about that, and I'm leaning into learning more deeply about what those specific connections are between racism and ableism, the patriarchy, et cetera, to get a bit more clear in my own analysis and teaching. Um, But that's something I, I wanted to lift up because sometimes it's easy to talk about solidarity as, oh, yes, I am this and that. But I think it's also important to understand how our understanding of our reality was informed by different ideologies simultaneously. Um, And that's, that's also why we have to build solidarity. Uh, My analysis becomes stronger when I work with disability rights activists. I I think the best learning in recent years I've had in my own practice was when I was in New York City, uh, working with a lot of disabled artists in the dance community, the way that they're thinking of and approaching and uh, prompting their inquiries is wholly like brilliant and fascinating and important for me if i'm going to say i care about racial justice for example to be leaning into my work the ways that they're leaning into theirs. so that's yeah that that gets that gets me stronger and sharper my practice for sure yeah
0: building on some of that work in new york i'd love to dive a bit yeah. more into the role of creative expression when it comes to just futures and maybe for you personally what creative practice has, has meant for you in terms of your own journey around this and, and re- the, the refining of, of some of your your work and practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more about um, how, how you, your your organization is approaching this, because I, I realize I have a very United States-centric frame for mm-hmm. the way that I've been thinking about arts and culture work, and um, just to lift up for folks on on the podcast that I got a master's degree in arts administration, and so much of that program, even though we had international students in our program who brought perspectives from Singapore, from China, and from elsewhere, so much of the learning about the arts and cultural sector was very U.S. centric. And so, yeah, I'd like to be in conversation with more folks in other contexts about this. But the way that I think about arts and culture generally and cultural expression in a general sense and why why it's central to my own practice. I can get go from the general to the more specific. I mean, the general frame is this has been mm-hmm. a part of human life and society since as long as we can have, you know, earliest documentation of human life um, on this planet. And the way that I've come into my own understanding of my humanity in the present moment has been through cultural expression. The way I've come into my own understanding about my relationship to Uh, communities of color in particular through artistic expression it was through my own practices in dance and my continued dance practice that I understand better uh, what it means to be in a deep call and response relationship with um, people around me so a lot of the dance forms that I've been studying over the past oh gosh since 2006 So, yeah, for some time now, um, for 14 to 15 years now, I've been studying a lot of traditions from throughout the African diaspora, and um, specifically traditions grounded in more Mande and Malinke dance forms, in um, Afro-Haitian dance forms, from Afro-Brazilian dance forms. There's been a lot of ways of knowing that I've been educated in in those communities that have pointed to the extreme importance of the relationship between dance and music, for example. So trying to come to a more clear articulation of this um, without getting too abstract about it, uh, in so many different contexts, there is no separation between dance and between music. So in in more Western traditions where there might be a dance that can exist without a particular piece of music, that's not necessarily the same case in the forms that I've been learning over the last 14-15 years and um, so the interdependence there the highly relational nature that's there those are values and principles that are really integral to those practices that I've been learning and I've been um, a student of and what that means for how I think of my interdependency with my social justice communities, my interdependency with my for example colleagues at race forward my interdependency with you as someone who cares about similar questions similar has similar value sets etc is that we do need to be in a call response with one another and um there's a lot of ways in which um how we practice distance and disconnect can take us out of those relational spaces with one another. So having a dance practice constantly reminds me, oh, this is what it's like to feel aligned. This is what it's like to feel connected. Um, just a simple act of hearing that beat for that deity that I really love and getting reconnected with that form is, a, okay, this is what alignment feels like. Again, I can feel really grounded and clear and true in this energy uh, whether it's uh, dancing for one of my favorites, Yamanja, uh, I really have a deep connection to water and dances that have to do with water, especially the ocean are really grounding for me. Um, it's just a reminder of how um, deeply connected we all are, whether it's um, in a specific tradition or form or whether it's taking art and culture as a larger context for connection, uh, whether you're at a community park or at a theater culture happens in a lot of different contexts uh, for that connection and for that rena- relational quality that it gives us.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting here in just in terms of the, the Canadian context from my kind of my positioning here on, on the West Coast. hmm Those things that you've shared, which have always been here and, and have continued to be uh, alive in community. But I think when we talk about power structures that be government level in terms of policy or from the funding level in terms of philanthropic organizations and foundations connection Mm -hmm. points between stick and creative and cultural expression Mm -hmm. and the work of of social justice of of community building uh, those connections are starting to be made clearer and starting to see an equity lens being applied to a number of granting streams which just at the minute you adopt that lens, you start to see that one cannot exist without the other, as, as you said, and that they are very much interconnected.
1: Right, and you can, you can imagine, right, if, if there's this, you know, group of people deciding that they're going to set up a racial hierarchy, a, you know, certain economic system to go with that, that it's also very helpful to um, set up artistic hierarchies or to bifurcate or further siloize where quote unquote art happens right Mm -hmm. um like it it sounds like a very helpful um feature of the system to say you know the arts live up here in this sort of high quote unquote high art space and that all other things will fall into a different realm and to control what is art and to separate that out and create a more you know exclusionary elitist practice around the arts that it it you look at the project and the practice of white supremacy, it makes sense, right? And so we because we've inherited this system that has done that to, quote, unquote, the art, um, we necessarily have to learn from the ways in which African, Asian, Arab, other cultures have been practicing art as belonging to everyone over time and to kind of reclaim those other frameworks for culture is is is, is a lot of the work that I see a lot of my my colleagues in dance and other art forms doing is... Um Art for art's sake is that's just such <laughs> a shitty framework. I mean art for the people's sake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah i I'm appreciating this question because I you know art is art has is, um, taught me so much about myself and i as I said, my relationship to my work, and it's not necessarily something I do every day because so much of my work at Race Ford is um, in the philanthropic sectors and other sectors, and it's also reminding me that. Oh, hey Michelle, you've kind of styled this part of yourself out of yourself. So, how do you reconnect back to your artistic self in your day to day? Is a is a reminder that I'm getting right now. I'm talking to you.
0: Mm. Yeah. And maybe just something on that idea of embodiment. Mm-hmm. What it means for you, and then how it's shown up, either in your creative expression or in your in your work with Race Forward and and other organizations.
1: So, there's a way in which I've been thinking about embodiment, and this is building off of conversations I've had with other practitioners who are also facilitators, also working in the nonprofit sector, and a feeling that a lot of us uh, really need to be diligent about creating space to remember ourselves or to belong, again, to ourselves and in our bodies. So a really important practice of embodiment or say remembrance. And I say remembrance because it's literally breaking down remember into rememberment, right? That I'm literally putting myself to back together for myself because of the ways in which the institutions, right? I've been operating within philanthropy, uh, arts service organizations, um, dance organizations. In some way, shape or form, the, the work of the nonprofit has done so much to dismember us and disconnect our our mind from our body from our spirit and to say just the mind is important so a practice of remembrance for remembrance for me if you will is is my dance practice it's also been just anytime I get to do some sort of physical activity that pushes me to be more mindful more um, engaged more creative whether it's going for a run or doing this exercise class that really motivates me, stuff like that. It can also be a really generative conversation with um, someone you get to connect with as a kindred spirit, if you will. People connecting with one another on a soul and values level. That's a practice process for me of remembrance, if you will, rememberment. Um, That's a lot of sort of personal and interpersonal work there. And I think there's this larger question, potentially that's in your question, which is, what does it mean for, say, a group of people working together to do that embodiment work and how we relate to one another and how we function on a day-to-day, whether it's within the space of a nonprofit or other type of institution or even outside of institutions to really make sure that our lived embodied practices are connecting with the values that we uphold. And some of the work we do at RaceFord is helping push people to work with and through, right, making the intention, the action something I know that y'all lifted up in your last season of the podcast. And I, I think there's <laughs> there's some pockets where I see great work happening. And I think it's still a big struggle because we've inherited this nonprofit structure. Um, for those of us working in nonprofits, and i acknowledge that not everyone's choosing that format to work with. And I think that's great and good. And I'm really excited to connect with more people that are choosing to work outside the nonprofit. Um, it's really hard because we... <laughs> We've inherited a thing, and I don't know if folks have been referencing the nonprofit industrial complex as a concept and way of analyzing the conundrum we're in right now, that we've inherited a, a format that's really based on on extraction and on concentrating how we do charity on a pre existing racial wealth maintenance system. So the origin of charity work being, you know, kind of in this era of great inequity being created whilst wealthy white people were gazing on poor people and saying, wait, what's going on over there? And you see the emergence of um, what we now refer to as slumming, which began kind of around the 1880s time, and, you know, matured into the next century, the emergence of settlement houses around the same time, also the emergence of new ideas about what philanthropy is around the same time. In mm. um, the 1880s, in that late later part of that century, um, Carnegie and other robber barons had amassed great amounts of wealth, and Carnegie came up with this series of essays, collectively known as the Gospel of Wealth, and proposed what was for wealthy people at that time a really revolutionary concept about what to do with their money, uh, which was instead of giving your wealth away in inheritance to your offspring, choose to spend or um, redistribute that wealth during your lifetime towards the greater good, right? Towards causes for the greater good. And this is sort of the, this is why Carnegie is referred to by many as the grandfather of modern philanthropy. Um, At least here in the US, I'd be curious to know what the conversation in Canada has been like vis-a-vis Carnegie. Um, And a lot of folks see the gospel of wealth as this you know, really great birth of um, the modern philanthropic sector. In building out a curriculum for talking about race and philanthropy at Race Forward, I went back and read the Gospel of Wealth, and it is a it is a wild wild piece of text with some really uh, racist and elitist ideologies just running rampant throughout it. It's got this really strange circular logic of, you know, uh, we want to create more uh, more good for the common good, and yet. Um, It it just does this dance around the fact that the person writing it and the people he's writing to, these white, cishet, you know, robber baron men, that they generated the problems that they're purporting to have the wealth and resources and, quite frankly, acumen to solve. So it's we've amassed our great wealth as entrepreneurial businessmen, and then we've been endowed. He doesn't necessarily say by the grace of God, although I'd like to look back at the text to see if anything referencing God is actually in there, but it kind of has this sort of like, you know, endowed, like, you know, manifest destiny style way of talking about these things. And you've seen that happen throughout human history or throughout white supremacy's history, if you will, in, in various moments. So it's just a new call for white men to again, be the pervade, you know, embodiment of God on earth to decide what to do with these vast sums of wealth that they've accumulated, uh, out of, you know, uh, extraction, practices of extraction um, and exploitation of black and brown bodies in particular. So um, that's a really long way of saying that we've inherited this system that was built on those ideas mm. and those practices. And I think at some point we've got to get it really real about um, whether we should keep participating in in the nonprofit-industrial complex, is this going to be enough? And is reforming it from the inside going to be
0: enough? Mm-hmm. Something that I know I still struggle with is is very much that last question that you pose, which is, is it work within the system that will ultimately change the system? I think, as, as you opened with, acknowledging the Lomé peoples uh, upon whose territory you are,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the Bay Area right now is is very much I feel kind of replicating that same Carnegie era. Approach ah, yeah. you know, the the Bezos and Zuckerbergs of the world. We're seeing that model through again in a digital age, and just looking at the way in which philanthropy continues to be structured, and and the voices it continues to center, and and how power sort of manifests itself within philanthropy. It can be uh-huh. a real struggle sometimes for those of us that want to see just futures realized to be working within a system. Is now I think becoming more adept at the language of things like decolonization of equity of racial justice more broadly but it when it comes to the actual mechanisms of the sector
1: mm-hmm.
0: continues to perpetuate those same power structures
1: yeah and it was very intentional that um, you know Carnegie and others at that time chose the nonprofit model or the, the that structure because of, you know, how it functions to concentrate decision-making power within a small group of people, i.e. the board. And it wasn't that Mm. they said, oh, and then the board shall therefore be our workers that we underpay. You know, it wasn't (laughs) like that. The structure was created to actually like concentrate power among the people who you purport to benefit with your quote-unquote philanthropic work, that you'd have a a group of the same elite, white, you know, ethno superclass being a part of that board and that they're the purveyors, again, like Carnegie, of what is good for the common good because, as he said very explicitly in the Gospel of Wealth, poor people cannot know for themselves what they need. Mm. So we must know what they need for them. And that kind of an attitude when when I do trainings with philanthropy, when we read out those quotes, like word for word from the Gospel of Wealth, I always put the question, do we see any attitudes like this in philanthropy today. And you can just translate into other philanthropists speak where program officers, program directors, other folks who, and this, I worked in philanthropy and I was, I was very attracted to being in a room where I, because I like to sound smart, where I could sound smart and then be seen as the smart person I am, and then be able to act on that smartness. Right. And so it attracts people who like to be as yeah the, the quote-unquote thought leaders and that's a loaded term that's you know still popular today in some circles and yeah how do we break that down further and you see um, some foundations really doing work to to rethink to reform as you were saying and um, I I do have to believe because at some level I am still choosing to participate in nonprofit work and mm-hmm working at Race Forward and doing the trainings that I'm doing. So at some level, I am believing that we can transition. And there's some great work coming out of uh, Justice Funders, which was founded here in the Bay Area. Dana Kaoka-Chen and her staff there are talking about what is a just transition for philanthropy. There's this tension then with philanthropy in particular as a sector we could talk about nonprofits more generally is, is it a question of transition? And to what extent is that transition also including transformation, right? Are we simply transitioning to a new format where we have right now, in my mind, a racial wealth maintenance system that has this sort of philanthropy charity valve that wealth mostly accumulated by and for white people can, you know, have a momentary redistribution. Mind you, most foundations in this country only pay out slightly above the 5% required payout level from their endowments. Um that's required by federal law. So there's still tons of philanthropic coffers just sitting around getting invested in for-profit companies. So you gotta question what the extent to which philanthropy is actually serving the nonprofit causes its grant dollars go towards. Are we gonna see that system shift to a racial wealth redistribution system more fully and more truly where the numbers look different, um, not just the racial equity statements or the DEI statements on the website? And if we're going to transition that sector into something that is more equitable and just, then where's the space to for transformation? We have a society in which the kind of philanthropy that Carnegie and others created just wouldn't be possible because we wouldn't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of getting to that just futures question. And so I, I see a lot of work and where we're in the space of right now with folks like justice funders is trying to get folks to transition their institutions right and hoping that there's a tidal wave therefore of transition for the sector at large and then there's this greater question of transformation and really I think the vision for that transform the transformative practice definitely has to come from indigenous leadership from black leadership from asian leadership from leadership of communities that have been actually form, forming their own ways of doing the work for quite some time. They just haven't had the same power that the Fords and the Kelloggs and the Kresgys of the world have had to dominate the conversation. So I'm, I'm sitting in this both transition and transform space and I'm, I'm happy to be pushed on it too because I'm in my own process here where, you know, someone might come and say, hey, Michelle, that's all well and good to talk about transition, but um, it's all for naught if you're not actually transforming eventually. So, um, And actually some of the transitional work might actually undermine the transformation. And I'm totally interested in having conversations like that.
0: Yeah, I think I'm say, a similar headspace in terms of seeing it as as kind of both are, are being mm-hmm. needed. Mm-hmm. I would give a big shout out to an organization up here I'm indebted to mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. and Aboriginal Peoples in Canada. Mm-hmm. Their work, that's very much really embody. Uh, the pursuit of both. Uh, so the Circle both works with existing philanthropic organizations here in Canada,
1: mm-hmm.
0: while at the same time actually elevating and amplifying the work of Indigenous-led organizations, particularly those that, because of the way in which philanthropy in Canada and in the States has been structured, you need a charitable number, you need you need a board, you need these various mm-hmm. pieces of the power structure in order to access mm-hmm. the funds uh, that you need to do your work they are actively working with with those folks as well. And in terms of the Canadian context, they're doing some really incredible work.
1: Yeah, and I'm reminded of something I talk a lot about in my work, which is this is a sector, philanthropy in particular, because we're talking about it right now, we can think about other formations of the work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, arts organizations, for example, come to mind as well, is um, where, where do we actually have real mechanisms for accountability? The theme of accountability comes up a lot in trainings because... We're talking about institutions that were designed to be highly unaccountable and out of relationship or or in particular relationship and in particular accountability with white wealth structures. And time and time again, it's almost like a broken record when we do work with um, community foundations in particular. There's a lot of reference towards and prioritization of how will our wealthy white donors respond to this work if we're going to save racial equity on the website. Hmm. If we're going to talk about racism, and that's way more compelling of a seed to resist doing racial equity work than what what about the communities we purport to support with our work being still dragged through this and that conversation again about you know how to make our grant making more equitable or how to make sure that this uh, opportunity gap is closed or this or that gap is closed and. There's not the same like the the emotional weight of disappointing people of color and indigenous people time and time again is really not felt. And it's just so disappointing. Cause there's way more emotional labor spent, backs bent over, contortionist moves made in order to appeal to white emotions. And the same is not the same movement and importance and feeling is not given to. The emotions of indigenous and, and people of color. So it's like the emotional ecology of the sector is way off. It's way off. Um, and that that's a that's a thing that racism does and that white supremacy does. It it, it puts our relationships out of whack. It puts our emotional intelligence out of whack. Um, where they, where the um, Fears and insecurities of a white donor mean more to us than the emotional distress of people who are actively being placed, displaced out of the downtown area where our office is located, right? And our own relationship to the real estate industry in our city is directly tied to that and we're enabling some of those behaviors to happen. And as much as we put those people on our website and in our brochures and lift up the really brilliant you know, fundraiser from that community that we can know will come, you know, at the drop up a call to come speak at our event and sound brilliant and make us feel good. Um, there's a lot of out of whack relationships and emotions at play right now. How are we going to become more accountable to, to getting right with ourselves and with each other? And that's something, um, those are the hard moments when you have to ask people to really account for the emotional ecology of their work. And mm. I guess if there's anything that as a dancer, as an arts person that prepares me for being a facilitator it's really just being at peace with like energy shift right so if i'm in the space of a training and things are being said and resistance is being given you know just putting out that hard truth in front of people like okay we care more about white people's emotions than indigenous people and people of color's emotions like full stop just like giving emotional space for that energy to be lifted up and that hard truth to be sat with and just to be okay with tension is is a skill that i I think comes from my dancing or in part, it was informed by my dancing. And I think we need more practitioners that are able to have space to, to be courageous like that, to be bold like that, to be able to pull coals in the veneers that we so tightly cling ourselves to in institutional life, like um, to name that our institutions betray us time and time again. Like we don't, I'd love for more of us to be able to have space to be those kinds of leaders and practitioners um, in, in the nonprofit sector and in philanthropy more specifically.
0: Mm. What are some of the things you're hearing in terms of where the stuckness is being felt most?
1: Mm. I think where, where I'm coming at answering this question right now is I see different kinds of stuckness or sticky areas or stuck in the mudness or rubber band snapping back in, in different spaces. So one snapback is the and this is folks who are more kind of in the beginning stages of doing the work and are still kind of questioning the extent to which racial equity is. There's a there's a layer of stuckness that comes up oftentimes when people are really, really concerned with maintain the quote-unquote excellence of their work. And what oftentimes they mean when they say excellence is that they see some sort of value in the way that they've been treading along and some sort of level of efficacy or type of efficacy, really, and and they don't want to have to question the extent to which their work has actually been producing outcomes that they purport to be producing. So, for example, if an organization is saying, well, why do we need to talk about race if we've been doing so good about supporting poor people in our community thus far, What they're really saying in a lot of contexts is, well, we don't want to have to look at our record and have to contend with the fact that maybe we've been doing it wrong. And we'd rather hold on to this shiny veneer of we're an excellent organization that's been at the forefront of philanthropy in this community for decades. And we don't want to have to mess with that legacy. Hmm. Remember, band snapping back into like fear of upsetting the powerful people. Hmm. Um, In some cases, the powerful people is that really strong executive or it's the board there's a lot of but my board won't there's a lot of but my board won't and i remember being on the other side of this being a grant maker uh, who who was in an institution that i was trying to reform from the inside out and being at a session and um you know myself and others were saying some versions of but the board won't or but someone won't you know whoever it was that powerful stakeholder we saw as getting in our way and the facilitator did a really great job for us of you know, naming that risk tolerance is, is as much about perception as it is about action. So our, our perception of risk is a part of what our own conceptualization of the reality of that risk. So what I'm trying to say without getting too heady right now. So we are both perceiving the risk and acting against our perception of it simultaneously to whatever our action might be. So... My, my perception of what's real is just as real as what's actually real. And if I were to test that perception, I'd actually know what's possible in a deeper way. So to get a bit more concrete about what I mean by that. Yeah, I'm really, it was, it's so funny because, um, you might not, you might be able to tell now I I love critical theory, but sometimes the getting it out into words can be tough because it sounds way more heady than I want it to. And so I want to make it clear. Our understanding of what's risky is just as much about our perception of what's risky as it's about the reality of trying things and risked things and seeing what the risk does for us. So uh, what I realized from this facilitator in that moment was that so much of my understanding of the board won't, the executive won't, my boss won't, was so much of my perception of what was possible versus me actually trying a thing that was risky and having the information come back as, Michelle, don't do that. Michelle, that's not what we do. Or Michelle, how could you for some other reason? I wasn't testing the bounds of my possibilities at the organization enough. Um, and so I started to test the bounds a bit more. You know, I put Latinx in a document, it would get edited out. Right before I left the organization, they decided to start using Latinx in documents. So if I hadn't actually played with the boundaries of what was possible and pushed up against my own perceptions of what was risky and that, that might not have happened right and yeah. it's, a, it's a small thing you know changing the word but it opened up a conversation about race about gender um in new ways you know other things like yeah so it's so that what that facilitator did was, did for me was say well how many slots on the wrist can you get enough so that you bump up just against you know the possibility of getting fired or getting, you know, restructured out or whatever mm-hmm. that ways of firing people of color are that institutions get really good at, right? In order to make it not look like what it is, um, tons of organizations restructure and end up structuring out people of color's jobs. Um, that's another conversation. So yeah, what I'm really trying to lift up here is is can can we play enough with risk and our perception of risk to get to a place where we're truly testing and experimenting with doing the more equitable, the more just thing, while slightly pissing off and aggravating people and institutions enough so that we um, make change, but that we don't get fired, right? Because mm. the the sort of negative side of, of playing too much with the risk, if you want to stay in your institution or, for example, you want someone else with the same value set to stay in your institution who may or may not come after you is to not get fired or to not have that position held by someone who would be less equitable, mindful, intentional, et cetera, about their work. Because a lot of us have very codependent relationships with our institutions. We start to identify really strongly with the brand, the leadership, the personality, et cetera. And so doing anything that might be quote unquote risky would seem like a betrayal to the institution when in fact, we're not also, uh, viewing their relationship as a two-way street where the institution also needs to be accountable to us and the values that we're bringing uh, so are we are we demanding the same of our institutions that we're letting them demand of us and uh, in some ways I think a lot of us are allowing institutional betrayal to happen uh, at a higher level and we could really be thinking about um, how do we helpfully take risks and push our institutions to be better
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Particularly, the piece on pushing the boundaries and pushing up against those power structures, I think, really resonates for me. I think, and it, it's something I've I've been, you know, very much complicit in in my own career in the nonprofit space. Is I think here in Canada, in particular, and I think particularly in a current political climate with a, a prime minister who's seen in many spaces as a, a beacon of democracy and and all those things, um, uh. is is the danger of I would say the progressive label because I think uh-huh. how that often manifests is it's either a organizations become the face of the movement so they operationalize they put into a, a funding proposal uh, the work of movements on the ground and they very much kind of co-opt or take on the work of a movement uh-huh. or they just they the baseline upon which they're looking at what progress is is very much sort of the status quo, and so what what they see as progressive relative to that status quo is is quite far ahead. Where in, in actuality, there's there's a lot of what I'm seeing and what I've been guilty of in my own career as well as the use of language and the use of ability and an adeptness to speak to work without actually putting any of one's own or one's own organizational social capital and legitimacy on the line in order to really test that um, commitment. My own work, I'm I'm trying to challenge out a bit more and I'm I'm seeing more and more folks who are doing the same, which is actually really trying to figure out where those bounds are. Because I think it's, uh, and it it goes, I think, to your earlier reflection just around valuing of the head uh, and the intellectualizing Uh, uh of our work. We've we've gotten very good at theorizing or articulating where we think the bounds are, um, but in terms of actually committing to the work of testing those bounds through action, I think there's a long way to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's um, definitely segments of the, the philanthropic sector in particular and also the nonprofit sector more largely where you notice how comfortable it is for people. And I say people generally, I'm also one of these people, right? It's very comfortable for us to live in a highly intellectual space, especially if that's where we feel secure in our training, in our own journeys, right? To, to get to this place where we can talk about ideas, um, can engage in discourse, can you know, be on podcasts like this talking about these things and it's quite another thing for us to step out of that comfort zone and actually make it actual so that's that's why i was really excited about the focus of y'all's work is that you're you are focused on that um bridging that space between in- intention and action between that and action right that that call to practice right what is theory and action look like for us is is really important to create space for us to actually be accountable to that because time and time again, I'm in trainings and we, we talked about this when we plan for a day and we noticed that um, we're with a group that likes to talk about ideas about the wor- world as we actually try to create more space for contending with um, the emotions around racism, mm. right? contending with um, how racism feels in our body, right? So. Uh, We allow folks to have their analysis because we think analysis is important, right? We need to understand, have shared understanding about the racist world we live in in order to build practice together. But if folks look overly comfortable in that analysis space, take them into their emotions, take them into their bodies, take them into what are are the spiritual questions that this brings up, right? Mm. Um, Yeah, it kind of um, means that we as practitioners need to be really skilled in the different modalities for understanding that we have as humans and knowing that um, we're in a room of people who might overly rely on or feel comfortable in an intellectual headspace. uh, Yeah, we got to lean on those other ways of knowing as well.
0: And maybe just um, to maybe take us out of the headspace and out of uh, the sector as well, some of the organizations or individuals or initiatives that you are, are particularly inspired by right now that you want to give a shout out to or amplify?
1: Oh, like a roll call. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah, I was just thinking about, Oh, I need to have a roll call somewhere. Cause um, I, I think it's an important practice to name, right. My teachers name, the people who've been really informative and transformative for me in my own practice. And I want to have somewhere where I can, you know, make sure that I'm referencing them more publicly and more consistently. Uh, someone, yeah. So I, I make my own website. I have my own website and like putting stuff together, this and that. I'm like, Oh, I should have a roll call page on the website. Um, and then just generally when I go out and speak with folks, when I connect with folks. Uh, so one uh, name one group that really comes to mind for me is um jawale willow joe who's the founder um, and artistic uh director of uh urban Bushwoman, which is a dance company based out of brooklyn new york and jawale's title actually might be a bit different now so i know that jawale has um and Urban Bushwoman, they've been on an evolution as of late uh, with regards to their structure as an organization. So I'm not actually sure what what title they're using right now. And um, I came into contact with Urban Bushwoman when I was in college. Oh, my gosh. Yes. No, I was fresh out of college and just looking for spaces to connect my dance practice with my social justice practice, and they have this summer leadership institute that they've been doing for a while now. Um, And it's a space where um, they bring forward a lot of their methodologies for doing community work. And Urban Bushwoman is uh, one of those uh, Black-led, Black-serving organizations that has been talking about community engagement and community partnership since before it became a posh thing that the whole nonprofit sector was trended into, if you will. And so, their their practice is real. It's deep. It's embodied. They connect the dance to the work um, in community because dance is community. And so I really lift them up in their practices as, as as people to follow um, and to engage with if you're interested in in this work. Mm-hmm. Urban Bushwoman works with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond as a part of that Summer Leadership Institute. And that was, uh, I, I, at the time, I'd been through a few other different racial justice or anti racist trainings. And I looked at the People's Institute as, as one of many uh, great groups to find education, to find learning community with. Race Ford, of course, is another one. And, You know, disclaimer that I work there right now, so that's mm. that's my connection to them right now. Um, but I think what Race Ford gave me at the time that I interacted with them was a real solid set of prompts and inquiries to take into my day to day work life. Um, it was it was uh, it was important to get that learning community, but also to get the tools that Race Ford gave me when I was working in arts nonprofits and in philanthropy. So I appreciate Race Ford for doing that. Then for me. Mm. Yeah, those are people I'd lift up. You know, there's so many dance teachers I've just had over the years. So I just really want to say their names. I really want to thank Tanya Santiago, Portia Jefferson, Raquel Hernandez, who's my teacher now in L.A., other groups that have been out in the world, you know, doing, doing the work and um, laying down the foundations for, for people like me to get better in touch with their bodies and their spirits through dance. So thank you all for, for what you do.
0: Well, this has been, I, I, I'm sure I, sure like, I would love to chat for, for hours and hours about this, but I am so, so grateful for your time <laughs> and just for not just the critical reflections you bring, but the humanity you bring to your work and just how you're able to weave together all of these different parts of your practice and of your work and of yourself uh, and really bring your full self into your work. Uh, it's just really, really inspiring and I'm just really grateful for, for your time and, and for sharing all of these these beautiful thoughts and reflections today.
1: Thanks, thanks so much for having me and creating this space. I super appreciate y'all and look forward to listening.
0: A heartfelt thank you to Michelle for sharing her insights, energy, and calls to action. It was a true privilege to have the opportunity to speak with her around the themes of this episode. For more information about Michelle and the work of Race Forward, please explore the links in the show notes. ckx questions is a podcast from ckx community knowledge exchange the intro and outro music for ckx questions is the song good vibes from broken parts's self-titled album be sure to check out the link in the show notes to support their amazing work until next time take care and let's take care of each other